We are uh, continuing in John 6. We've been kind of hanging out in this chapter for a little while. Uh, This is actually our fourth look at at the specific concept that Jesus says he is the bread of life. So our text this morning, which I will read in a few moments, starts at verse 60 and we'll go to the end of the chapter, verse 71. And just to remind you, um, chapter 6 begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 plus. And in doing so, uh, these people proclaim after this miracle that this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. They want to take him by force. They want to make him king. Um, and so he slips out the back door, right? And he, they find him later at Capernaum, which is kind of his headquarters. And they begin to have a discourse that we've been studying. And at first, they're asking him, more about himself, but eventually they begin to sort of argue and grumble with who he is. And what we'll find this morning is what he says is so offensive that they'll actually, many of his disciples will turn and leave from him. So we're going to look at that this morning, starting in verse 60. I want to remind us that what he has just said is he's the bread of life. But then when they dispute that, he doubles down and says, you have to eat of my flesh And you have to drink of my blood, which is very hard. So they're really frustrated by this. And in verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who these words, who these, excuse me. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil, is a devil, excuse me. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. These are hard words, but we know you are with us. We know your spirit has written these words down. We know that your spirit is not only present in this room where two or three are gathered together more than that, but Lord, that our own hearts are filled with your spirit and that these words can come to life. So I pray this morning they would have this effect as we study this beautiful, wonderful promise found in John 6. Amen. So we start the discourse with the the people finding Jesus and they, they're, they're asking him why he ran, why he left. They're sort of, 
they're sort of laboring to find him. And remember, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes. And then they start to hear this question about, well, what is he talking about? So they say, well, what is the work of God? What do we have to do? And Jesus says, here's the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. That was radical for them. Now, for us, some 2,000 years later, this concept of believing is understandable. Martin Luther, Calvin, and many other theologians have helped us understand the concept of justification by faith. But often, I think we make it so simple which it is, that we also make it very easy. And I think when you go into this bread of life discussion, he said, eat of my body, drink of my blood. What he is saying is believing is eating. Right? We talked about that last week. Well, the secret decoder ring is this week. Right? Verse 63, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So what Jesus is showing us there is, let me explain all this to you in one simple to understand concept. You need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to apply all the benefits of Jesus to us. Earlier, he has told them that if you believe in him, his Father and he will make their home in you. So the secret decoder ring is beautiful. It's the Holy Spirit has come on you and he's applying all the benefits of Christ to you, right? And, and our job as Christians is to believe that, right? It's easy. I was talking to someone this week about the weather. Um, he was heading down to Houston, but he's from Oklahoma. He said, I like Oklahoma weather, even though it's this time of year, like tornadoes and storms, at least it's predictable. And what he means is at least the upheaval of our weather is predictable. If you know anything, you know you get the cold air coming over the Rockies, the warm air from the Gulf, a jet stream somewhere in there, and boom, you have conflict. And that's what Jesus says. He says, let me just tell you, like, you're gonna have weather, right? If you have the spirit, you're gonna, and you also have the flesh, there's gonna be conflict. So the question for us this morning is what does the normal Christian life look like if we believe with the people that stayed, the 12 or the 11, uh, that Jesus is who he says he is, what does it look like to then live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit? I read a quote this week that said this, we are, um, we are not human in order to become Christian. We're Christian in order to become human. So here's the premise. You were made, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you were made for his Holy Spirit to dwell in you and bring life to you. And yet we are so easily duped by the flesh. So I hope in three steps to show us how that flesh works and how the spirit works. And to find those three steps, not that you only need to do three. You can do five or six, but we're doing three. I want to look at Peter's response. I love Peter. Peter is that disciple that really speaks for everyone else. In fact, he answers. And when he's done answering, Jesus doesn't say, well done, Peter. Now what do the others say? What does he say? After Peter's response, he says to them, is this not why I chose you? So Peter's simply articulating on behalf of the others this statement. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So our first point is going to be this. To live by the Spirit, what, what the Holy Spirit is doing is restoring a relationship. That's the first thing that's happening. Versus... What the flesh wants is the benefits without a person, without a relationship. So as we begin to dive in what it looks like to be a Christian and have the Spirit, I just want you to begin to hear 
it's a restored relationship. Remember, in the garden, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. And what happened in the fall was that relationship was shattered. Now, when Satan or the serpent tempted them, he didn't say, follow me. Let's, let's have our own relationship. He convinced them that to live out of their own effort, on, on, under their own power, under their own flesh, that that would be enough. So where is that in Peter's reply? Lord, he says, not what philosophy would we go to? Lord, what other teaching would we follow? He says, Lord, to whom would we go? The Holy Spirit is a person, and Jesus is offering us a restored relationship. He says, my, like I've already mentioned, my Father and I will make our home in you. It's this union with Christ. Jesus is saying, my home is in you. You are now restored to God the Father. You can quit trying to live as if it's up to you. So are you tired? Do you feel the weight of trying on your own effort to be a good person? Well, if you are, then think of this movie, Weekend at Bernie's. Anyone remember this one, especially older folks? Weekend at Bernie's. Um, I'm going to go mostly from memory. I did double check it. It's been a long time, and I do not advocate this movie to anyone. Do not watch this movie and say, the pastor said, I can watch Weekend at Bernie's. No. There's a couple of younger executive guys that have a boss, Bernie, who's wealthy, and he invites them to his home on a weekend to have a weekend with Bernie and have a party and have a blast, and he's wealthy, and it's going to be amazing. Well, they show up to the home, and unbeknownst to them, he's been whacked by the mafia with like some sort of a drug, and he's sitting there, but they didn't know it for a little while. So once they started to realize it, they kind of realized maybe we could put some shades over his eyes and pretend he's okay. Because what happened was this party starts to happen and the guests start to come in and no one knows this poor guy's gone. Right? So, so this, this movie continues and they realize, hey, we can have a great weekend with this. Like there's scenes where they like try to walk with him and wave and they're trying to do all of these things. And here's why I'm using this as an illustration, right? It, as you watch the movie, it's absurd. And it's not only absurd, it's tiring. Like, the, they're trying so hard to keep up the ruse that this dead thing is alive. Isn't that what we do when we live out of the flesh? We're trying our best to just, how are you doing? I'm doing great, brother. How are you doing? Like, we're trying our best to just put up the ruse that everything is fine, but what we're trying to do is avoid in our fineness and our attempt to have fun, Jesus. So walking by the Spirit takes you necessarily to Jesus and to a relationship. And relationships can be hard and relationships can be messy. And so it's much easier in our fleshly driven minds to think, no, I'll just go it alone. But Jesus is saying, you're gonna come to me and you're gonna have fruit in a relationship. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards says this. The saints' love to God is the fruit of God's love to them. It is the gift of that love. God gives them a spirit of love for him because he loved them from eternity, which is all through John 6. His love, that is the Father's love, the Son's love, and the Spirit's love, is the foundation of our regeneration and the whole of our redemption. And we have this relationship, 
And so point number one, and what Peter seems to understand better than those that have left, is this whole thing is not about a new philosophy, but it's about the person of Jesus. Is that what you're excited about, a restored relationship? But secondly, the spirit versus the flesh. The spirit gives us a longing and a love of eternal life now. In contrast, the flesh lives as if the eternal life was something distant, right? Now, in verse 63, Jesus says, the spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and, present tense, life. Okay? So he says it twice in that verse. Present tense, you have life in the spirit. And then Peter, in his response, says... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He was not saying you have something else that's way down the road, but the Bible is constantly saying throughout the New Testament and the whole Bible that when you have redemption, when you have Christ, you have that reality presently. I think so often when we're living out of the flesh, a telltale sign is that seems distant. That does not compute. And I think there's two broad ways to do this, but one way is the Epicurean motto of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? And that can seep into the Christian life through antinomianism, that is licentiousness. We can just live today like there's no tomorrow, and then, oh, by the way, if I have an accident or something bad happens, then heaven's going to be amazing, and I have that too. The other extreme would be legalism, which I think does the same thing. I'm going to do everything right now in a very kind of stodgy, boring way, but I know that in heaven it hopefully gets better and we have praise and glory and it'll be fun. And what Jesus is saying is you have life now in the spirit. You have full life right now. Listen to this quote by John Henry Newman. I read this in seminary and it has just stuck with me. He says, heaven is not for everyone. Now, bear with me, okay? Here's, I wanna, I wanna set the stage. Most people, even non-Christians would say, Heaven's, gonna be, heaven's amazing. Like even non-Christian movies about heaven, it's gonna be awesome, right? And I like this quote, it gets your attention. It's not for everyone. It is an acquired taste, but it's hard to acquire while our taste buds still resemble a crocodile's back. An unholy person would be restless and unhappy in heaven. If we don't like Jesus now, it's not gonna be fun. Now, let me turn that around because I'm going to give you some good, more exciting news, but I want you to understand Jesus is fun. His Holy Spirit is amazing, but if we're not aware of that now, then I think we're, we're sort of living this flesh-driven faith, and my hope is that as we start to understand how the Spirit brings holiness, we'll start to say, I want eternity to be brought in. Thy kingdom come now. Thy will be done. I have a more encouraging note, uh, quote I'm going to read to you now by Cornelius Plantinga, and he's, he's, he's sort of riffing off of the sort of catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy him forever. And he calls it spiritual hygiene. Now listen to these words. It's very, I think, helpful to get out of our box of religious words and into sort of a more fruitful understanding of what this could look like in the present. He says this, spiritual hygiene includes our goals, purposes, and primary intended consequences. The point of our lives is not to get smart or to get rich or even to get happy. The point is to discover God's purposes for us 
and to make them our own. The point is to learn ways of loving God above all and our neighbor as ourselves and then to use these loves the way a golfer uses certain checkpoints to set up for a drive. You know, a golfer, when he tees up, or she, you, I'm a he, so I use my own pronoun. You, if you're good, you find a target. If you're bad, you just kind of hope it goes somewhere that direction. But if you're good, you kind of pick a tree, uh, something in the fairway. And then Nicholas, Jack Nicholas, would even draw that back to like something right in front of him. So when he, t- he lined up, he knew exactly the goal, the trajectory of that shot. Right? Um, there's lots of golfers in our audience, and I could start asking everyone, but I think we're just going to go with that explanation. And he says, it's like that. When you understand, I'm going to just now paraphrase where we've been. If you understand the gospel and you know you're free because of what the Spirit is applying to you, you now have the freedom to then aim like a golfer does. To point, the point, he says, is to be lined up correctly to seek first the kingdom of God. To try above all to increase the net amount of shalom in the world, peace in our world. This same author has defined peace by calling it an eternal flourishing. He says he describes shalom as the way things were supposed to be. So as a Christian moves into relationship with Jesus and the Father because of the Spirit, the Christian also moves into the world and says, I want redemption now. And begins to immediately see the ways redemption can be accomplished in their midst. Right? He goes on. To enjoy God forever is to cultivate a taste for this project to become more and more the sort of person for whom eternal life with God would be sheer heaven. So the spirit brings that. The flesh does not. So the spirit brings us into a relationship with the person of Jesus The Spirit brings us into a desire for life presently. And then where we're going to spend some of our final moments is this last idea um, where he says, Lord, to whom, that was point one, shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That was point two. And we just skipped over point three, the words of eternal life. I I want to just touch on what are these words that he's talking about. In verse 63, we've kind of looked at that a few times already. He says, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What are the words Jesus has spoken in chapter 6? He is saying, what I've told you, which feels like news to you, is that whom you think should be an earthly king and should just walk into Jerusalem and kick out Pilate and kick out all the bad guys and plant a flag, though we will sort of do that eventually, what's going to happen is I have to die. And that was news to them, right? Remember, they're, they're celebrating the Passover in John 6, verse 4. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was at hand. So Jesus sees this. It's the Passover one year prior to his entry into Jerusalem for his final time. And he sees this as an opportunity to, to explain to his own disciples and to those that will listen and believe, I am the Messiah, but I have to die. And in our very passage, he says, they, they, they were starting to grumble. And in verse 61, he says, do you take offense at this? 
then what if I were to tell you, or what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so the concept there is, um, he's saying, you work, I'm connecting you to heaven. He's used that language before in the book of John. He used it with Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, remember, he didn't understand being born again. Uh, he came under the cloak of darkness. They're having this conversation in chapter 3. And Jesus said, if I told you earthly things, fleshly things, things that are physical, the word flesh, I believe, in our passage is just dealing with the physicality of the world, and you do not believe, then how would you believe heavenly things, things of the Spirit? That's my interpretation. I'm, I'm bringing the two together there. No one has ascended, that's John 3.13, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Okay, so right there, he's just talking about the incarnation and that he will go back to heaven, glorification. But then in verse 14, right there with Nicodemus, he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you remember the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is saying that pointed, that was a type that pointed to me as being the only rescue for the poison of the fall. When you were bit by a snake, you had to look up at a snake to be healed. When you've been bitten as a human, you need to look up to a human on the cross who is healing you. All of your sins, past, present, and future, are taken care of, not because of a good moral code, not because you finally got it together, but because Jesus Christ is on that cross. So when we speak of the cross, it's, I get that, that we get stuck with the imagery of liter the literal cross, and it of course is that, but it paints the whole picture of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, and what it covered. And when, what Jesus is saying, even before his death in our very passage, is that's what's going to drive you. That's what's going to free you. These are the words of eternal life that will change you. And it's for unbelievers, if you are not a Christian and you are here today, the first step is to say, do I believe that? But if you are here today and you're a Christian, the first step is to say, do I live out of that? In Corinthians, Paul, 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a group of Christians who are following various people and various things, and Paul's having to write to them and admonish them. And then very early on in chapter one, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's past tense, for us that are saved, it's a neat historical thing we remember, we talk about at Easter. No, it is the power of God. So the point is this. When Peter says you have the words of life, of eternal life, he's saying your words, the gospel, is what drives us and we are to feed on. Now I want to talk about those words in Jeremiah and how we might use them. How we might use the word of the gospel practically. In Jeremiah 15, 16, it's a very awesome, just hear these words. Your words were found, and I ate them. A-T-E. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy, and the delight of my heart. 
For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Why is that so freeing? Because the words of Jesus look at you and say, without any change, without you proving yourself for even four minutes right now, by believing on him, you are perfect. You are in Christ. You have his righteousness applied to you. You don't realize how much you live under the law. That's the problem, isn't it? We don't realize how much condemnation we live under. And so those words often don't free us up. Um, I was talking, I was trying to process this this week. I wasn't sure I would even use this illustration, but here's an example of how easy it is to feel condemnation. I'm going to paint a scenario. Every one of you, you're the person, you're going to go into a lunch appointment with a friend, an acquaintance, a friend, kind of like the person, kind of feel obligated, so there you are. And you're sitting there eating, and they make this passing comment, I'm not really sure I believe in that whole Jesus thing anyway, blah, 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 and they move on. What do you feel right now? What should you do? I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're at that lunch, what should you, what do you want to do? You want to say, like, Jesus is real, but why don't you? I would love to hear answers. The reason we don't is because of shame. Now, a lot of us would say, no, 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 no. It's because I've studied how to evangelize, and it's through processes and through relationships. True, fair enough. But that's not what we're feeling. What we're feeling is if I said something positive about Jesus in this moment, I'm going to get laughed at. It's going to feel awful. They're going to label me. Shame, right? Anyone tracking with me so far? Because that's what I feel like sometimes. Okay, what if you pulled up in your car to that appointment and all of a sudden Gabriel was sitting next to you, the angel, and said, hey, you're about to walk into this lunch and your friend is going to make this really awkward passing comment about Jesus, but that's really their bid. And if you will just tell them that Jesus is real and they hear your words and you explain it just briefly, the words of eternal life, they were, they're going to start weeping and come to know you or to come to know Jesus. Now you're in that meeting, how do you feel? I mean, maybe nervous, maybe curious, maybe shocked that you saw Gabriel, trying not to tell, I, by the way, I saw Gabriel before I came in. The point is this, I'm trying to juxtapose the feeling of one moment you're living under this obligation and you feel shame because you don't know the outcome, and in another moment, you feel complete confidence because you know the outcome, that Jesus is real, and you can proclaim it truthfully. And so I think we live under a constant sense, not all of us and not all the time, but the flesh tries to get you to feel shame and to turn in on yourself, and the words free us. So we eat these words, and they set us free. Here, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, to joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when I understand the gospel, I can turn to the scripture into words, and I can begin to let it examine my life, like the writer of Hebrews says, like Jeremiah 15 says. I can, I can begin to be exposed in the places where I feel shame, and I want to distance myself, and I'm not sure of that truth. 
Many of us know Psalm 1 where, where the psalmist says, uh, blessed is the man who, and then you have the negative, does not do these things, but who delights in the law and meditates on it day and night. That does not mean that that person is just thinking about the Ten Commandments over and over, which is not a bad thing, but rather they're bringing their life to the law and saying, show me where I'm broken. Show me where I need fixing. Now, why can't you do that? Because of Jesus. I was thinking about an illustration of that. I mean, I just want to give you a couple of thoughts on to illustrate that. Architectural digest. You walk into a house and you see architectural digest on a coffee table. Have you ever seen this? I love that magazine. But it's crazy. Why would you put that in your house? Like, because my house will never look as good as you flip that magazine. Your guests are going to be like, this is horrible. You know, why do you do it? I'm not judged, right? I'm free. The law frees. I'm never going to look like Jesus, this side of heaven. So put it out there. And those that love the law can go farther and farther. You meet someone that loves to model. They finish a project and they're showing you. And I'm thinking, God, oh, I'm glad that's over. And they're going, and guess what I'm going to do next? I'm going to do the next bedroom. I'm going to do the next thing. I'm still going to do the baseboards. I'm free. The law is beautiful when I'm not underneath it. There is no condemnation. That song repeats it over and over for a reason. You have been set free. So what's the language then of a person that is spirit-led? We have, G we have the restored person, right, Jesus. We have the longing for the future to break into the present. And now we have the words of eternal life. And our response, our words, are confession. Like we delight to confess. Listen to what Kurt Thompson says. As he's a neurobiologi neurobiologist, says this. Using neurobiological language in Christian orthodoxy, we view confession not simply as listing of wrong behaviors. It is also an ongoing acknowledgement of our human nature. From a neuroscientific standpoint, when we admit our penchant to ignore emotion, to be inattentive to memory or to disintegrate our minds. He's using all this neurobiological language, right? And then we reap the behavioral consequences of doing those things. He says, basically sinning. When we confess that, when we pay attention and we confess those things, we are acknowledging the presence of neural networks that are being reformed. What he's basically saying is this. When we confess our sin, there is, abs there is actual physiological changes in your brain because you're no longer pretending this is normal. Conversely, when you don't confess, you're saying, this is normal. Have you, as a parent, I have done something to a child, like maybe I've shouted, I've been angry, and then I apologize by saying something like, I shouldn't have done that. But you shouldn't have, blah, 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 blah. What am I saying? So my response was justified. And what does my brain do with that? Uh-oh, this is the new normal. Like, here's who you're going to be. You lose your temper. True confession is to say, Daddy shouldn't have done that. Like, I think the Bible and what I hope to see with Jesus doing in my life is that I would not do that. Confession. On the basis of Jesus, I'm free to be honest with the fact that that wasn't a good thing. And now I can go into my world like Jason Bourne in that scene, you know, when he's sitting there and he's like, I can name that guy over there has a slight left foot, you know, that person over there, that's the, 
you know, the, the license plate number 63. You remember that scene in Jason Bourne? Christians should be like that. We should walk into our environment and given the moment, say, I can tell you all the ways Jesus could redeem this. I should walk into my own heart and say, I can tell you all the things I want to see Jesus doing in my heart because of the reality of the Holy Spirit fresh in my soul. Is that your hope? Is that what you want to do? Practically, confession. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in a letter to a young convert or a new convert, says, says this. Though God has forgiven and forgotten your past sins, you should not forget them yourself. Now, I want you to hear me. That sounds so weighty, unless you're free, okay? If you're free, then you can remember them. He says, remember all the, the wretched bond slave that you were in the land of Egypt. Often bring to mind your particular acts of sin before conversion. And then later he says, and also be greatly aware of your remaining sin. And never think that you lie low enough for it, but yet be not discouraged or disheartened by it. Though we are exceedingly sinful, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is he saying? What's so, you meet a new convert and you wanna say, don't remember the past, it's gone. It's true, legally, but here's the problem. It's neural networks are still in here and you're gonna continue down those paths I think the Bible is inviting us with the psalmist in Psalm 1 to go back and rewrite the narrative based on the gospel. We are to go back into our life and re-preach the gospel to ourselves past, present, so that we can do it in the future. Does that make sense? What would it look like to have that view of confession privately before the Lord and when appropriately with other people to be that in love with the work of Jesus? What it would look like is a revival. It would look like a revival. But so many of us look so good right now, don't you? We look really good. So do we want to give that up? I mean, we've worked so hard for our resume, so hard for this tan or this body, whatever it is, this reputation. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost something to come to Jesus and say, rubbish, only you. But what you'll gain is eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessings and the glory that you pour out in our lives, but forgive us for placing our trust in those things like Bernie. Lord, we long to look good and have the smile and have the waving from people, even if we're a carcass. So I pray this morning for those of us that are Christians and those that aren't, we would place our trust fully in you. For those of us that are Christian, the good news is that we already do believe, that we already have the new man, that we already walk with you. But Lord, you would still invite us to continue to trust in you more and more, to, to observe the areas of our souls and our hearts that still live according to the flesh. And Lord, for those in this room that are not Christian, they're placing every bit of their trust in their resume. I pray they would trust in you. You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. Holy Spirit, let this be true this morning for your glory. Amen.